Welcome to Sparks of History, where Jewish history and world history meet. We are extremely pleased to have with us today Professor Gil Troy. Professor Troy earned his BA, MA, and doctorate from Harvard University. Professor Troy is an acclaimed American presidential historian, popular commentary on politics, Zionism, and many other issues. Professor Troy has served as professor of history at McGill University in Montreal and has been a Shalom Hartman Center Research Fellow and helped found the Center's Engaging Israel program. Professor Troy has authored and edited numerous books, including, but not limited to, The Zionist Ideas, Visions for the Jewish Homeland, The Age of Clinton, America in the 1990s, Moynihan's Moment, America's Fight Against Zionism as Racism, History of American Presidential Elections, the Reagan Revolution, Hillary Rodham Clinton, Polarizing First Lady, the Rise and Rejection of the Presidential Couple Since World War II, and See How They Ran, the Changing Role of the Presidential Candidate. And today we will be discussing the fascinating and hopefully very relevant topic of American presidents and their views on Zionism. Professor Troy, thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate it very much. Honored to be with you, and thanks for the nice introduction. Thank you. Um, going all the way back to President Number One George Washington, um, Washington's historic visit and letter to the Turo Synagogue um, were historic for American Jewry. Did Washington hold any opinions regarding the Jewish people and their rights to the Holy Land? George Washington, like so many Americans, was deeply steeped in the Bible. And the analogy of the Jewish people being enslaved and leaving slavery and then finding freedom, dignity, um, and ultimately democracy was very important in the minds of all the, um, the founding uh, fathers. So while he didn't speak that much about the Jews, because the Jews were a very, very, very small minority at the time, uh, he definitely had a kind of orientation toward that story and a kind of instinctive support, as we'll see from many of the presidents, for the Jews as kind of fulfilling the same prophecy that they believe the American Revolution fulfilled. When I was in graduate school, I was I had what I called the Chaim Solomon obsession, because when I was in Solomon Schechter School of Queens in fourth grade, I was Chaim Solomon. And we all grew up knowing that the American Revolution was saved by the great financier of the American Revolution, Chaim Solomon. And I would go to the top American historians and I would take any American history book I found and always go to the index and look, Chaim Solomon, Chaim Solomon, never found it. And I would stymie these historians. Why is Chaim Solomon so important, they would say. And I'd say, it's less important what he did for the American Revolution as the fact that he was a part of the American Revolution. And so we Jews are always trying to figure out where do we fit into the story. And as you'll see, there's a kind of proportion here. Sometimes we're not that central. But nevertheless, the fact that we've been a part of the story from the very start is very important. Yeah. Um, we're skipping down to many, many years from Washington, unless there are other presidents in between um, Washington and John Tyler that you would like to speak about or any other, other founding fathers. No, again, the, you know, one of the interesting things about the founding fathers is, you know, there, there are kind of three major things in their head. One is the Bible. Two is the pilgrim experience. And three is the Greco-Roman experience. And the Greco-Roman experience, we often emphasize how it taught them about democracy, but also made them fear decline and ruin. 
But the pilgrim experience also, what did the pilgrims call themselves? They were establishing the new Jerusalem. They very much saw themselves as continuing the Bible. And so you hear those echoes in so many American uh, speeches and, and, and you see it in many American actions to this day. Moving down to, to John Tyler, who perhaps is not such a well-known president and has been called the president without a party, I believe. Um, what was the source of John Tyler's positive views towards Jewish immigrants and recognition, quoting a saying, the promise that is made of his restoration to the Holy Land? Well, that sense of restoration is, again, that, that analogy. And it also goes back to he had an Episcopal background. You know, we, we like to emphasize how many of the Americans, what they call American presidents, were deists, meaning they had a, a belief in God, but they tended to be a little bit more distant from the church. John Tyler was closer to his church. He came, um, he had Southern roots, and so he was part of that whole establishment of the, the Southern plantation, the Southern slaveocracy, and the, the Southern church. And so for him, it was very much living through that analogy. <clears throat> but he also uh, appointed a, an American consul to Palestine in 1844 and uh and and that also shows an understanding that there's an there's something going on in the holy land and years later when mark twain would come visit uh you could see that same sense of wow this holy land you know you can look at from one perspective and you just see a bunch of dirt but from another perspective you see possibility and that continues to be the story of the zionism uh the zionist revolution and the american revolution um abraham lincoln of course, Abraham Lincoln, uh, among the Jewish people, is a uh, almost revered figure. We know that the synagogues, um, when he was assassinated, I think it was during Passover, had special services for Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln was an avid Bible reader. Did he express any opinions regarding the Jewish nation's historic ties to Zion? It's a funny thing you say, Abraham Lincoln and the Jews. It's like, you know, the old, the elephant and the Jewish question. Well, you know, what, what relevance does this have? Uh, but uh, the, the great American historian and Jewish historian, Jonathan Sarna, wrote a fascinating book years ago about Lincoln and the Jews. And he really was able to use the story of Abraham Lincoln and the Jews, which, again, is still a very small part of the Lincoln story, to tell a broader story about who Lincoln was and where America was at at that moment. People, because Lincoln is so important, have combed um, the Lincoln archives trying to find some kind of statement that's proto-Zionist, that's supportive of Israel. And the best that people come up to is, is there is there is a story that um, he he told some acquaintances that he thought that the Jews should be restored to the homeland. And he said that he uh, had respect for Jews since podi his, his podiatrist was Jewish, a guy by the name of Issachar Zachary. So we can um, salute Issachar, Issachar Zachary. Um, but the more important story, of course, with Abraham Lincoln and the Jews is that when Ulysses S. Grant passed uh, General Order Number 11, uh, kicking Jew peddlers out of uh, the area that was more or less Tennessee during the Civil War, uh, Abraham Lincoln appealed to by Jewish friends. Um, had this kind of legendary moment where uh, his, his friend comes to him and says, this is terrible. And, and Abraham Lincoln, speaking almost in biblical language, says, you've come to Father Abraham to, to save the Jews. And so there you see, again, the power of that biblical analogy. Uh, and, you know, those are kind of the fun moments of being president. You can kind of live, uh, you can live the Bible, you can, you, you can live large. Okay. Um, you had mentioned before, Professor Troy, the uh, consul that was appointed by John Tyler to Palestine. Did James Garfield's appointment of a Jewish council to Egypt reflect an understanding of the Jewish people's 
ancient history with Egypt and freedom. In history, sometimes something significant happens because it's the day before something really significant happens. And it just so happened that uh, James Garfield appointed Isaac Wolf uh, to as consul to Egypt the day before he was assassinated. Um, so it ended up being perhaps his last official act as president. And there he very, very explicitly said, I am happy to name a descendant of a people who had been enslaved by the Egyptians as a representative to that country from a great free land. There is still a God in Israel. And when he says there's still a God in Israel, this, of course, echoes to Eretz Israel, the land of Israel, but also to the notion of us all being living, uh, uh, building the promised land. And um, it's, it's important to understand, especially in an age where so many people have lost faith in America and have lost faith in God, that much of the idealism of America was intertwined, not just with a faith in liberty and freedom and democracy, but also with a faith in tradition and in God and how we create a godless America, how we create democracies that have no core values in common and that aren't rooted in a story greater themselves is a really interesting challenge. And I think it's one of the things we're struggling with right now, uh, especially in the United States, but throughout the West. Uh, the rise of, of Zionism in, in Europe, uh, Herzl, the Zionist Congress, gets uh, steam, starts moving, the movement captures the imagination of, of much of world Jewry. Did, did Herzl or any of the early Zionist leaders have any contact with American presidents or, or simply with their administrations or American officials? Theodore Herzl was in many ways a frustrated playwright. And one of the things that I saw when I did this deep dive into Herzl uh, earlier in the year and uh, came out with this three-volume set about Herzl's diaries is you see how the statesman and the lawyer on one side of Herzl show his focus on politics, but the playwright shows also his more poetic side. And he actually even had a play in New York and he reacted to America in, in a very exciting way. He saw America, this home of possibility, this launching pad for dreams, and this modernizing country as a model for his Altneuland. Now, unfortunately, Herzl died at the age of 44 quite suddenly. He was only active as a Zionist for 11 years. So he didn't do the great world tour um, uh, America, America style. But one of the things that's most interesting if you go a little broader, is that six years before the first Zionist Congress, in 1891, there was something called the Blackstone Memorial, where 431 prominent Americans, including people like J.P. Morgan and John D. Rockefeller, future President William McKinley, wrote a, 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 a request, a petition, to the President of the United States saying, wait a minute, the Jewish people need a homeland. And so you see that in the same way that Yitzhak Mitzrayim leaving of Egypt was central to the to the American model throughout the 1890s, and then certainly through the 20th century, more and more American presidents, more and more American leaders, more and more members of the American establishment would see how important it is for the Jewish people to come home. And when we talk today about what unites the United States and Israel, we talk about shared values, and we talk about shared interests. But it starts with the shared values, these shared biblical values. Take us back, Professor Troy, if you can, to the um, antecedents of the Balfour Declaration by England, and then we'll see how it ties into America, if it does at all. The Balfour Declaration, of course, is so important. In 1917, England, which 
was Great Britain. It was the center of the, you know, the, the most powerful empire in the world. And, and the one, you know, when we look at the Middle East and we see a lot of the messes, but also we see how clean the lines are in the maps, it's because the British did much of the map drawing. And so in 1917, um, when Lord Balfour, the uh, foreign minister of, uh, of England, recognizes that the Jewish people have a right to a homeland in Palestine, wow, it's an amazing moment. It's a moment when the world starts recognizing in a very formal way our fundamental rights. We don't need the world's recognition to have those rights to this homeland, but it helps politically, globally, uh, and so and diplomatically. And so we put the De Balfour Declaration of 1917 with the San Remo Declaration uh, and the League of Nations mandate of the 1920s and with the people like to call it the 1947 UN Partition Plan, but I like to call it the 1947 UN Recognition of the idea of a Jewish state. What formed the Jewish state was the secondary to the fact that the world is recognizing the importance. Now, within that, there's lots of diplomacy going on. What's most fascinating about the American side of things is that by this time, Great Britain is going down a little bit and the United States is starting to uh, work its way up. And so it's very important for them that Woodrow Wilson help out. Now, Wilson instinctively is rooted in the Bible as a Virginia-born son of a preacher. He also, as we'll see in his 14 points, very much believes in national self-determination. And many people think that while Woodrow Wilson certainly had certain moral shortcomings when it came to women, when it came to blacks, he in many ways invented the modern world with so many small nations being able to express themselves culturally, politically, uh, existentially. And so Zionism would fit into that vision. But a month before the Valfort Declaration uh, of November 1917, Wilson is not so excited about this impending declaration. Why, people say? Many people think it has to do with his anti-Semitic advisor, Colonel M. House, E.M. House. And people give Louis Brandeis, uh, Wilson's friend who uh, served on the Supreme Court, thanks to Wilson, and had been a great progressive lawyer and crusader, uh, as the one who convinces Wilson, wait a minute. He reminds Wilson who he is. He reminds Wilson of his best, best self in terms of his biblical orientation, in terms of his belief in self-determination, and frankly, in terms of the need, need to boost up uh, a Jewish and frankly Western presence um, in the Holy Land as it goes from being controlled by the Turks, the Ottoman Turks, to the Brits. Okay. Um, so did he face opposition, Wilson, uh, aside from his advisors? Was there political opposition from Congress, or was this, again, part of the whole worldview that Wilson it was, had? It was much more uh, internal. It, was, it wasn't a huge debate um, in the United States at the time. The, it was much more once Great Britain issued the proclamation, and once Wilson supported it, there was a great um, surge of enthusiasm. But many of these things, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a different moment in time. Uh, the media isn't the media, it's just, you know, journalists, it's reporters, and they're not as intrusive. We're not following things as citizens um, day to day as we do today, moment to moment. And so it was, it, there was not this, this, this huge debate, because it's just one of these things also that, you know, Great Britain did almost by fiat, but there was a lot of behind the scenes diplomacy. Um, you had mentioned, again, that other presidents um, endorsed the Balfour Declaration, um, Warren Harding, as an example, uh, he endorsed, endorses the Balfour Declaration, but historians um, note that he might not have been that popular among American Jews. So what, what's the dichotomy there in terms of support for the Balfour Declaration 
but not a popular president in the view of American Jewry. It's, it's funny, indeed, in, in 1922, uh, he signed the, the Lodge Fish Resolution saying that the United States Congress supports uh, and the United States itself supports the Balfour Declaration. Uh, he also, interestingly enough, in the 1920 election, uh, benefited from a surge of, of Jewish voting uh, back at the time when most Jews did vote Republican, and he was a Republican. But he also supported immigration restrictions. He also didn't stand strong against uh, Henry Ford and Ku Klux, the Ku Klux Klan and the rise of anti-Semitism. And so one of the fascinating things we see with Harding is something that's playing out in many ways um, in the 21st century, is what does it mean to be a pro-Jewish president? Is being pro-Israel enough? Obviously, there wasn't an Israel at the time. But can you be pro-Israel and perhaps maybe against some of the cultural, political, uh, domestic agendas of the Jewish community? And so Warren Harding, you could say grossly, uh, is, is a kind of predecessor to the debate about Donald Trump. Was he good for the Jews? Was he bad for the Jews? Well, it depends on which perspective you take. Said he very cleverly dodging the answer. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's fine. That's fine. That's you know we're uh, talking about history and um, not necessarily uh, Donald Trump and uh, current politics. Uh, Herbert Hoover, um, post presidency, finds himself supporting um, a Jewish homeland. Something that he did or did not do as president. And this is something common that we see one view when, when you're president, but another view when post-presidency. When I was a freshman in college and I was really struck by the question of what did my grandparents who were living in Queens in the 1940s know about the Holocaust? What did your typical American Jew, what did your typical American, what did the American president know about the Holocaust? I started looking into um what had what was going on there and i discovered this wacky novelist and screenwriter by the name of ben hecht who uh, ended up getting involved in something called the committee for the jewish army which was saying wait a minute if jews are being attacked and there isn't yet a jewish state because before 1948 let's at least try to get a bunch of jews to fight together to bring pride back to the word jew and lo and behold there's the name of herbert hoover on these petitions and herbert hoover's name keeps on popping up in the pre-state debate about establishing a Jewish state. Now, I grew up knowing that Herbert Hoover was the bad guy because Franklin Roosevelt was God. And all of a sudden, when we look at the 1940s, you see that Franklin Roosevelt is the one who's not letting Jews in, and Herbert Hoover is supporting the Jews. Let's go back. We forget, because Herbert Hoover was such a failure during the Great Depression, and Franklin Roosevelt cleverly ran against Herbert Hoover and won once, twice, three times, four times, even though Hoover was only in office the first time, Hoover was cast as kind of the incompetent villain. Before he became president, he was the great humanitarian. He was very involved in flood relief, in famine relief after World War I, which was just called the Great War then. And as part of his humanitarian orientation, he was in favor of the Jewish homeland. And even in the uh, even when he was president, while he wasn't the most enthusiastic, he issued a number of statements, uh, often invited by the Zionist Organization of America, which was a much more mainstream organization then, um, to uh, to support the Jews in Palestine, and most fascinatingly, in 1929, he condemned the Jewish, the anti-Jewish riots that the uh, Palestinian Arabs 
pulled off against the Palestinian Israelis in those days. They're called Palestinian, I'm sorry, Palestinian Arabs and Palestinian Jews. Um, and, um, and, and so what we actually see is while pre and post he was more enthusiastic, he certainly has this orientation, understanding that it's a humanitarian issue, that giving the Jews a home uh, after centuries of wandering and persecution uh, is the right thing to do and is the obvious thing to do. You obviously mentioned Franklin Roosevelt, and I mean, there's so many books on Franklin Roosevelt and the Jews, and you know, the, obviously the the ones that are extremely negative, condemning, and actually ones that are not so condemning of, of Franklin Roosevelt. He was trying to win the war, and that was the the, the main thing, etc. Franklin Roosevelt, Zionism. How does that play out? So, indeed, you know, they they joked that. The Jews have three Velten. Velten is Yiddish for worlds. Die Welt, Genevelt, and Roosevelt. This world, the other world, and Roosevelt. And in uh, Jewish districts, from Brooklyn to Beverly Hills, from poor Jews to wealthy up-and-coming Jews, uh, Franklin Roosevelt often won 90% of the vote. And he was seen as the great savior. But we see that during World War II, again, his justification was, as you said, he was Dr. Win the War. And the most important thing was to keep the war effort going. And he also knew that many, especially Southern members of Congress, were anti-Semitic and anti-war. And he didn't want the war to become a war for the Jews. And just as they had tried to call the New Deal the Jew Deal, he didn't want to be a World War Jew. And so he had certain political reasons for acting cautiously. At the same time, he could have been far more um, aggressive in bombing the rail lines to Auschwitz and all that. But you're asking the more important question, which is as the war is ending, as they're looking toward the post-war period, where did he stand vis-a-vis Zionism? And of course, he died in April 1945. So the issue ends up being much more on Harry Truman's plate, his successor, rather rather than on Franklin Roosevelt's plate. But I think we can say that in many ways, he, um, he was inching his way towards supporting a Jewish state and um, and understanding that as news, which his state department originally suppressed, as news of this awful mass slaughter of the Jews came out, there was no choice but to establish a Jewish homeland. We have to be very careful in our language here because we've been talking about this dream of a Jewish homeland for decades, for centuries, for millennia before. And it's Palestinian propaganda to say that it's only because of World War II that the Jewish state was established. But it's also not realistic to ignore the way in which the mass slaughter of 6 million Jews during the Shoah, during the Holocaust, helped more people understand the need for a Jewish state. And now coming to the establishment of the State of Israel in 1948, Harry Truman is is president. Um, The real story, what's the real story behind Truman's recognition? You know, Truman is, of, of course, the great hero, recognizes the State of Israel, against an onslaught from the State Department and his advisors and generals. And then on the other hand, we find um, documents um, noting his anti-Semitic leanings and then, of course, his close friend. And what's the story, President Troy? How do do you make sense out of all that? So, well, let's start with the ending, um, which is that indeed in in the early 1950s, when he finally uh, finishes being president and he goes to the Jewish Theological Seminary and he's honored, he gets up and he says, I am Cyrus, because just as Cyrus was the Persian emperor who returned the Jews after the first exile, he sees himself in biblical terms 
because his mama would read the Bible to him uh, in, in, in Missouri as he was growing up. And, um, and, and he sees this story, as we've seen so many of the presidents, we've seen so many Americans in biblical terms. So he does have a certain kind of orientation that's positive toward the Jewish story and toward the restoration and toward this Yitzhak Mitzrayim just leaving from Egypt. But indeed, as you point out, if we go through his diaries, if we speak to some of his, uh, if we spoke to, you know, some people who, who knew him way back when, um, he peppered his speech sometimes with um, racial epithets and with anti-Jewish epithets. But unfortunately, that was kind of like a tick of the times. And so I don't define people by the worst moments of their lives. I don't go through the diaries with a vacuum cleaner, just trying to zoom, suck up every negative thing that's done. I try to look at somebody in context. And when I think that shortly after World War I, he goes into business with a Jewish buddy, Eddie Jacobson, and they create uh, what's called a haberdashery, which is basically a men's clothing shop. The only time people ever use the word haberdashery is to tell this story. Uh, and he remains friends with Eddie Jacobson for many, many years, even after that haberdashery goes bust. And both of them insist on paying their bills. Uh, they don't just go into bankruptcy and say, okay, I'm walking away. They pay back every single one of their creditors over the years. Uh, I, I see certain character. And that character uh, was incredibly important, as you point out, 1947, Big push, the UN recognizes, again, what do we say? Not the partition, but the right of the Jewish people to a homeland. And the date is going to be May 14th, 1948. And all of a sudden, the pressure on Truman, on David Ben-Gurion, on the Jews not to declare a state grows. And even the legendary general, George Marshall, serving as Secretary of State, says, don't do it, I'll resign if you do it because... Look, we have hundreds of millions of Arabs, 200 million Arabs. What are we going to do? They're just, what are we going to do? Why are we going to waste American prestige on the small, not viable group of Jews who aren't going to succeed anyway? Seven Arab armies attack the day after the, the day the state is declared. And Harry Truman, within 11 minutes, recognized the state of Israel. And people love to say it's because of this friendship he had with Eddie Jacobson. I hate that story because I think it reduces a multidimensional, mix of both the personal, the political, and the um, and the global, the geostrategic, into simply the story of, oh, this guy went to his old friend, said, Harry, I've never asked you for anything. Please meet this wonderful man, Chaim Weissman. That's true. But that's a small part of a bigger story, where first of all, it's 1948. What do we know about 1948? That's the same as 44, 40, 36, and 52, 56, 50. It's, a, it's an election year. And Clark Clifford runs, writes a famous memo, one of uh, Harry Truman's key aides, saying, we need to get the Jewish vote in New York. We need the Irish vote. We need the union votes. We need all these different votes. One of the ways to get the Jewish vote is to recognize the state of Israel. So there's a political dimension as well. So there's the personal, Eddie Jacobson, and his own biblical orientation. There's the political, um, Clark Clifford and the 48 uh, campaign that's looming. And there's the geopolitical. What's the most important thing after the war beyond rebuilding America is suddenly they go from fighting the Nazis to fighting the Soviets. Now, in 1947, both the Soviet Union and the United States of America voted to recognize the Jewish state, November 20th, 1947. But Harry Truman wants to make sure that the Jewish state, they didn't even know what they were going to call it, um, is going to be within the American orbit, within the democratic orbit, within the Western orbit. 
And so for that mix of political, personal, and geopolitical, he recognized the state of Israel within the 11 minutes. But it also took a lot of character. It took, uh, because for him to defy George Marshall of all people. And lo and behold, guess what happened? Marshall didn't resign. <laughs> we often see that people like to, to threaten to resign, uh, but they don't really like to give up their limousines or in Israel, their Volvos. Um, Dwight Eisenhower. Dwight Eisenhower, again, a, a president that perhaps gets a bad rap um, because of 1956 and, and the Sinai campaign and the pressure that's put on Israel. On the other hand, we know Dwight Eisenhower was uh, the one that went into the camps and made sure that everything was filmed and perhaps um, put General Patton in his place on, on that whole issue. How do you sum up Dwight Eisenhower and... So in some ways, the way you framed it could, uh, again, allow us to kind of go to this parting model of sometimes someone is not anti-Semitic, um, is not, now this is the opposite side, right? Here, I would say that in many ways, he was good for the Jews in that moment when he walks into uh, a very small concentration camp, originally Ordov, and he sees what's been done. And he turns to a young aide, and obviously he's been debating with a young aide about the Germans. And he says, you see, you see who they are? Maybe they aren't as good as you think they are. And then he forces every German in the town next to the concentration camp to walk through and see what he just saw. And then, as you mentioned, he films it. And he sees the moral dimensions of this. And all of a sudden, if you go back to the origins of World War I, of World, I'm sorry, World War II, America's entry, there's a big debate in America. Is it the right thing to do or not? Should we get involved in this war? We got involved in World War I, and all we did was end up with dead soldiers in a second world war seeing Auschwitz and Bergen-Belsen and these broken Jews on newsreels gave Americans a moral clarity that some didn't have until that moment and that many had been building over the course of the fight against Nazi totalitarianism and Japanese totalitarianism. And so in that way, he was very much pro-Jewish, right? That's why sometimes we're oversimplifying when we go pro or con, those aren't helpful terms. But indeed, I, I think that when it comes to his policy toward Israel, he did look at Israel as a bit of a thorn in America's side, as a little bit of a distraction. And certainly, uh, and here again, we can roll back the reel with uh, Harry Truman. You mentioned um, 1956. Well, it's not only the 1956 Suez campaign, but that occurs right in the middle of the 1956 re-election campaign. And so there's a political dimension where Eisenhower, who's trying to say, I'm the stable one. I've brought order. I've brought calm to the country. All of a sudden has this mess in the Middle East, and it wasn't caused by the bad guys, but it was caused by the good guys. Israel, France, and England together went into the Sinai for justified reasons, but still for, from Eisenhower's perspective, they went behind his back and they're causing trouble precisely when he's trying to consolidate uh, what ends up being an election victory over Adlai Stevenson. And so I would say of all the modern American presidents, he's probably the most ambivalent until we get to Jimmy Carter's post-presidency. But uh, nevertheless, he does still support Israel. And as I say, I would never, ever, ever call him anti-Semitic because he had that moral clarity in the Holocaust. And by the way, when we talk about the ongoing question of the American relationship with Israel and the American relationship, frankly, with Jews, the fact that that generation of Americans who fought in World War II, who led World War the fight, as Eisenhower did, who witnessed with their own eyes the concentration camps or heard about it from first-hand witnesses or saw it in newsreels, the death of that generation 
means that we really need a reset in terms of American Jewish relations um, and uh, and American Israel relations, because that core instinctive understanding of the righteousness of the Zionist cause is less clear. Um, Not that it's any less right, but it's just less clear in people's eyes. John Fitzgerald Kennedy, um, so many different um, places named after Kennedy in Israel, the Kennedy Forest, the Kennedy this, the Kennedy that, obviously extremely popular uh, in Israel. Um, an avid student of history, Kennedy, a, a reader of, of history. Um, did he hold Zionistic views based on his understanding of history and the Bible, uh, etc.? So Kennedy not only had the Bible, but in 1939, uh, as a young student, he's traveling and he goes to Palestine. And uh, he says, if I can quote, I first saw Palestine in 1939. There, the neglect and ruin left by centuries of Ottoman misrule were slowly being transformed by miracles of labor and sacrifice. But Palestine was still a land of promise in 1939, rather than a land of fulfillment. And so he very much sees it in biblical terms, but he also sees it in American terms as the Jews are making the desert bloom, the Jews are fulfilling the, the, the prophecy, but the Jews are also very much living out the American dream. And uh, when he was running for president in 1960, you know, everybody was talking about how young he was, uh, which basically meant how inexperienced he was, because he wasn't that much younger than his rival, Richard Nixon. But uh, in one speech, he said, you know, Israel's a very young country. I don't hold it against the Israel, and I hope people don't hold uh, age against me either. And that was Kennedy. He was able to kind of take a negative, turn it into a positive, uh, very quippy. And um, he makes it very, very clear that um, he is uh, a supporter of Israel, that he thinks that Israel is, as he said, Israel is here to stay. Time will judge whether Israel will continue to exist. But I wish I could be as sure of all my prophecies as I am of my flat prediction that Israel is here to stay. For Israel was not created in order to disappear. Israel will endure and flourish. It is the child of hope, and the home of the brave. It can neither be broken by adversity nor demoralized by the success. And I particularly love this line. He says, it carries the shield of democracy and it honors the sword of freedom. And no area of that world has ever had you know, overabundance of democracy and freedom. So now, of course, we're seeing an evolution. It's not only the biblical prophecy. It's not only the Israel that could be, but it's the Israel that is in the process of formation that is already tied to American values, perpetuating American interests, and today also sharing many American challenges. He also, in um, historic terms, is important because he sells the first serious weapon package to Israel. It's defensive. It's missiles for uh, anti-aircraft, but nevertheless, it's an important shift um, in um, the American strategic, strategic approach to the Middle East and to Israel. You had mentioned um, earlier a shift, a generational shift, the shift of, of Americans who experienced World War II, fought in the wars, had a different sense of history, and now we have this generational shift where uh, some are concerned of, of an extremely weakening of support among the American public for Israel. Is, is that reflected also in the more modern presidents, the ones who, again, our post-World War II presidents? Is there a connection there? I, I, I do think, as I was saying, that there's something biographical in the stories of people like uh, John F. Kennedy, and by the way, his successor, Lyndon Johnson, 
who I think because he wasn't as cool and hip and eloquent as Kennedy, and because he got in, in, entangled in the Vietnam War, wasn't as much beloved by the Jews, but in many ways was um, far more important because he, in 1967, makes sure that Israel doesn't go under. He, in 1967, when the French stopped supporting uh, Israel with uh, with offensive arms, steps in and really gives the American-Israel relationship a push to a whole other level. And he had a great line. He said that... Um, uh, you have lost a very great friend when he's talking about John F. Kennedy's assassination to the Jewish people, but you have found an even better one. And um, and that was Lyndon Johnson. He also had uh, seen Holocaust refugees. He had just enough experience in the war to know how awful the Nazis were. And so I think that was very, very important. So look, when I look ahead to the um, to the future, and certainly I look at some of the more recent presidents, I look at the fact that Barack Obama, for example, while I would never call him anti-Israel, and I think calling him anti-Israel was silly and unnecessary. I mean, I really know, having served on uh, university for so many years, what anti-Israel looks like. Uh, we see every day in Israel, unfortunately, and we just have four new um, terrorist victims, what anti-Israel looks like. He wasn't anti-Israel. And in fact, he also signed a major um, defense pact with Israel. And when he arrived in Israel, made a made a pilgrimage to um, to, to, to Zionist sites and, and, and showed his appreciation for Herzl and Ben-Gurion and, and the meaning of Israel and the existence of Israel. Nevertheless, when we look at the Iran deal of 2015, when we look at some of his tone, the tone of some of the statements, when we look at the toxic relationship between him and Bibi Netanyahu, we get a sense that he doesn't have that same instinctive love. And he didn't have that same what we, you know, in, in Yiddish called kishka feeling. And that's the fear. The fear is that there won't be that same kind of deep instinctive bond. And um, and there's an, also another problem, which is that increasingly, as America becomes more polarized and as bipartisanship is no longer a value, something like the APAC organization, which lived off of bipartisanship and said, look, we think bipartisanship is a value. And the fact that Israel is a bipartisan value is actually a gift not just to the American people to Israel, but a gift of Israel to the American people because we need some issues on which left and right can agree. But now, when partisanship is so toxic, we see a situation, and I beg, I beg my Republican friends, don't make Israel a wedge issue. Don't make it your property. And I beg my Democratic friends, clean house. Once upon a time, if there was a small group of anti-Zionists in America, they lived in the Republican Party. But today, the growing group of anti-Zionists is in the Democratic Party. And we need people like Barack Obama to clean house and say, and Bill Clinton, say, this is not the Democratic Party we know. This is not the liberalism we know. Because when, he, when we look at the Middle East, whatever criticism we might have of what Israel does, when we see what Israel is, the only democracy in the Middle East, the only democracy which has never known a day of peace, the only democracy which is which has 20% non-Jews, um, Arabs uh, having full rights, we need to support that. And we can't allow this moral ambiguity where we say, oh, you know, cycles of violence, there's deaths on both sides. Yesterday, there were deaths on both sides, but two of them were Palestinian terrorists who shot four innocents, including a 16-year-old. There's no moral equivalence there. It's not about body count. It's about counting as uh, standing up and, 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 and counting for what's important for our, our, our moral core. 
both as Americans and as Jews? Uh, in conclusion, um, people like lists. You know, people like, you know, what's the top five? What's the top ten? I'm not sure why, but it makes things kind of like, you know, perhaps simple, oversimplifies. Your top five or three American presidents vis-a-vis Zionism, the idea of a Jewish homeland. So you still have to go with Harry Truman. I am Cyrus uh, because of the recognition of Israel. That was game changing. And and again, the heroic nature of defying the um, the advisors. I'll, uh, I, I have to say Lyndon Johnson, as I suggested, because of his uh, of the real strategic shift and the tonal shift there. And, and you can if you're if, if there's a plot line of the American Israel relationship is like this, boom, it really jumps. And I'll throw in a third name, which we haven't mentioned, which is Ronald Reagan. Because now with Reagan, it's complicated because he often had very difficult moments with Israel over the bombing of uh, the Osirak nuclear reactor in Iraq, over the uh, Israel's invasion of Lebanon. But here too, we get to tone and here too, we get to politics. Ronald Reagan made it very clear that supporting Israel was not just bipartisan, but nonpartisan, that it was a core American value. And Ronald Reagan often was able to get away with political failures and political shortcomings just by speaking so nicely. But he did speak very nicely about about Israel, and he started creating a new dynamic whereby Republicans became very, very enthusiastic supporters of the Jewish state. And we've seen how that's only grown. So it's it's really interesting we could take those three presidents as three key inflection points. Harry Truman puts Israel and America on the same trajectory. Friends, Forever. And special friends, the true specimen, special friendship. Lyndon Johnson puts them together in that very important military strategic alliance based on common values, based on the shared challenges of the Cold War and the Soviet Union, but really a defense pact. And Ronald Reagan saves the Republican Party from its more anti-Zionist elements and makes the Republican Party of today, which is very much uh, a center of support for Israel uh, for Zionism and for the Jewish people in many ways. Any uh, parting thoughts on, on, again, how you see events today, rise in anti-Semitism linked to anti-Zionism? Is anti-Zionism anti-Semitism? How do you make those distinctions? So, first of all, it, it's just a heartbreaking topic because I grew up in a world where we really believed that we had were born into the post-Auschwitz covenant. Growing up in New York, I had very few incidents of anti-Semitism, and I felt very safe. And to speak to birthright participants, to speak to young uh, American Jewish students on campus, and to hear the kind of rank, ugly anti-Semitism that's often just echoed because it comes from the garbage of the internet, but it's there, and they're living in, in, in their daily life is heartbreaking. Now, as I say that, I also have to put it in proportion, right? The ugliness of modern American anti-Semitism doesn't compare to what I call good old-fashioned anti-Semitism. It's not Europe. It's not the Muslim states. It's not the Middle Ages. So we have to put it in proportion, but we still, of course, need to have zero tolerance for anti-Semitism. The fact that anti-Semitism is what I call the most plastic hatred, that it's taken on a new form, and now its most popular form and most toxic form is anti-Zionism, is very problematic because you have these people saying, oh, I love the Jews. I'm not anti-Jewish. I'm just anti-Israel. Well, when you're just anti-Israel, you're deeply anti-Jewish. You're rejecting what most American Jews and Jews are all over the world recognize as the great Jewish project 
of the 21st century and of the 20th century. And you're deciding that Jews distinguish between their Jewish selves and their Zionist selves. But 85% of American Jews talk about how proud they are of Israel. Most American Jews and most Canadian Jews and most British Jews and certainly most Israelis understand that hatred of one is hatred of the other. Hatred of the Jew is hatred of the collective Jew, which is now the Jewish state. And how can you say, oh, I don't hate the Jews, but I only want to destroy nearly 50% of the Jewish population in the world, which now lives in Israel. So, but the biggest problem with this debate is we Jews are busy making those distinctions. The burden of proof isn't on us. The burden of proof is on them. The great Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan says, everybody asks what's wrong with the accused. I ask what's wrong with the accuser. And so I ask what's wrong with the accuser. What's wrong with these people who are so obsessed with Israel, with the Jews, that they can't see the difference between democratic Israel and totalitarian neighbors, that they cannot see the dangers of a nuclear Iran, which doesn't only talk about little Satan. Israel's only little Satan. The great Satan is the United States of America. And the inability to see our enemies, both within the Jewish community and within the American community, is something that we really have to watch for. And learning the stories of these presidents, learning the stories of these values, learning this biblical understanding of what unites us is one way of doing that. Professor Troy, this has been absolutely fascinating, and uh, we can go on and on, but perhaps for, for a next interview, hopefully, in the future. Again, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it very, very much. Thank you. Great. And keep up the great work. Thank you.